and hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast focusing on K-12 policy and the politics of K-12. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And, you know, if you want to kind of just pause the podcast right now and maybe like mix up uh, an herbal tea or maybe even something stronger, whatever beverage kind of relaxes you, it was kind of a week of some... um, Fiscal reckoning. Some kind of uh, startling numbers came out of the uh, the school funding formula committee. That's kind of where we want to start. But a lot of other budget issues kind of came to the surface this week. But let's start with that funding committee. Yeah. We've talked about this funding formula committee since its inception in the spring, and we've covered their meetings through the summer. This week they met in Pocatello, and probably the most newsy meeting of the bunch, Clark, because we're getting an we idea some of numbers. some dollar amounts, Kevin. And, and it, no surprise, we knew this was going to be a heavy lift. We knew this was going to be a long, involved process. But lawmakers heard some numbers, and there were some ranges discussed. But we're talking about big money if, if we're looking to revamp the school funding formula and take care of things like um, health insurance costs uh, for employees as they continue to grow. What were our, our Eastern Idaho reporter Devin Bodkin uh, covered the meeting this week? But what were some of the what were some of the highlights from that meeting? Well, Devin breaks the numbers down pretty uh, pretty concisely, but the figure. The takeaway number from this week is $131 million. That was kind of the estimate that came out what it would cost to implement some of the changes in the funding formula that the committee is looking at. And none of these things are really surprising. You know, the committee is looking at the spiraling cost of health insurance for school districts. No surprise there. We know that's an issue. We've heard administrators talking about that. We've heard administrators talking for a long time about the cost of, of hiring classified employees because, you know, the, those, those non-certified employees are getting to be more and more expensive because we're talking about folks like IT professionals command a high salary, can easily get a high salary in the private sector. Those, those folks are not hired on the cheap, and that's a big deal for, for districts. And this move to an enrollment-based funding model, that comes with sort of uh, some funding pressure and it would cost more to to fund a, an enrollment-based model. So we knew that some of these things were going to to come to the fore. We knew that there was going to be kind of this, this day where the price tag started to come into focus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I know that this comes on the heels of we're not done, certainly, with some of the task force recommendations. We're looking at big budget requests this year coming up for increases right. in teacher pay through the career ladder. And I, and I think here we're talking more about, I don't see any of these funding proposals coming up in the 2017 legislative right. session because the the funding formula committee's work is going to continue probably through next year. So I don't think you're going to see the implementation of any of this affecting the budget proposal that Governor Otter comes up with in January. It certainly was not it, it was not incorporated in State right. Superintendent DeBarra's budget proposal. She couldn't have incorporated this stuff because she had to turn in her budget earlier this month. Yeah, I think we all knew that this was going to be looking ahead, a multi-year process. And as some of the state budget analysts pointed out during the meeting this week, it was several years of implementation, it's not like we're likely to see a a package, a piece of legislation with a $131 million cost all at once. I don't think anybody's envisioning that. And really important as we move forward on this to keep it all into some sort of historical context. 
the state hasn't rewritten the funding formula since 1994 and well documented why we're looking at it again, all the changes in the school system. But remember in 1994, and this is a number I wrote about a few months ago, it's still, it's still a really mind-boggling number, so I always like to, to cite it. In 1994, when the state rewrote the school funding formula, the state also had a lot of extra money to put into K-12. To replicate that kind of a funding increase today on a per-pupil basis would be a $350 million lift. Nobody's talking about a $350 million increase in, uh, in public school funding. So you know that in, in order to try to make this work and to try to make sure that everybody feels like they've been kept whole, it's going to cost money. Yeah. Stay tuned. The committee will continue meeting. Uh, they have another meeting scheduled in October, and they will likely continue uh, after that as well. So stay tuned. We will follow that and report back uh, on the latest. Now, also on the funding front, you wrote this week, Clark, about the Idaho School Boards Association. No hard numbers here, but the, the school trustees seem to be making noise towards really drawing a line in the sand about funding priorities. What are they most concerned with? Yeah, I, I think that drawing a line in the sand is, is a good way to put it. Earlier this month, uh, the Idaho School Boards Association, that's one of the three kind of main education groups that we hear a lot from uh, during the legislative session there. Executive Committee adopted a policy where they basically said until their top priorities are met, they are not going to support any new education initiatives that would require new, they call it line item budget funding, but it's essentially any new programs uh, that would that would uh, cost money. And so what are the ISBA's top two uh, priorities? Uh, their priorities are to fully fund teacher pay increases under the career ladder salary law, which we just mentioned a minute mm -hmm. ago, and to bring districts uh, operation funding pools up to 2017 levels with inflation factored in. This is kind of an interesting point to make here. When we talk about operation funding, remember earlier this session, Kevin, lawmakers brought operations funding back to 2009 levels. That was a, an important number because that was the high water mark before the budget cuts and holdbacks in response to the Great Recession. So we got back to 2009. Uh, what the ISBA and the IEA, for that matter, are saying is they want that increase to 2017 levels with inflation factored in. And I talked to Karen Echeverria from the ISBA this week about it, and they don't have a, a dollar amount in mind that they want legislators uh, to hit. So it's kind of a difficult, uh, you know, it's kind of a difficult thing to put a specific target out there on, on what we're looking at. Uh, but they're basically saying we got back to 2009 levels, uh, but we have 2017 realities in the classroom, and we're not paying for that. And it goes back to some of the realities that we talked about in that first segment, things like insurance costs going mm -hmm. up, things like hiring an IT professional or other other you know, not-certified, non-teaching professionals that you need in a school district. Those are realities, and those are some of the funding realities that are addressed through that operational funding. And so what could this mean by the ISBA taking this kind of financial stand? Uh, well, one thing uh, right off the bat is there are a number of proposals that the ISBA members will consider in November. One of them is State Superintendent Sherry Ybarra's Rural Schools proposal. Uh, that was something that originated last year. It did not pass 
the legislature. The ISBA's executive board has already adopted a do not pass uh, position on the Rural Schools Center. Uh, the Buell School District has supported a proposal to bring to the ISBA. The ISBA governing board says nope, that would count as new funding, new line item funding. And until they got a lot of money, but they are drawing the line even on that three hundred thousand dollars. They are they're not willing to go uh, over that point. Now it, things would get interesting if ISBA members actually voted. Uh, to back the Rural School Center in November, then that would put the ISBA in an interesting position where even though it had a do-not-pass recommendation, they would honor the vote of their membership and advocate for it at the legislative session. So that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Just this one policy point could be how it could be affected uh, with the ISBA taking this position. If you want to... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, if you want to look at some more of the proposals that the ISBA will consider, uh, we have an article up on Ed News and a link to all 12 uh, education proposals that the ISBA will consider heading into the legislative session. And it all potentially sets the stage for uh, a lot of debate in the 2017 legislative session about the career ladder, funding career ladder year three at a cost of maybe $57.8 million if you if you believe Superintendent Ibarra's budget proposal. And we've already heard that this career ladder could be a big lift, a big talking point uh, during the legislative session. We mm-hmm. heard that from one of the education yep. stakeholder groups. So interesting stuff. We will continue to track that. Kevin, I wanted to ask you about a story that you were working on about rural schools uh, this week. Uh, what, what are you working on? What did you find out? Well, I've had the chance this week to kind of follow up on the news from the week before about the Secure Rural Schools program. And it feels like we write about this every year or so, because every year or so, this federal program is in jeopardy. Uh, its funding is in peril, and we're at that point again. Um, what I wind up doing is talking to some superintendents in timber country who are really dependent on this funding or really are, are watching this whole process unfold. If it feels like deja vu, it is deja vu. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in, in 2013 or so, Congress saved the secure rural schools funding by inserting it into a bill about the nation's helium reserve. Now, that's a straight line for anybody who wants to make jokes about Congress and hot air, but <laughs> and have fun with it. And in 2015, it was tacked into a Medicare bill. I mean, you know, but the funding also seems to be withering away a little bit. Every time it gets refunded, every time it gets uh, reappropriated, the dollars shrink a little bit. And for some districts, this is a really big chunk of the budget, and we break that down. We talked to some superintendents who are on the front lines of that, so check that story out at idahonews.org. Absolutely. I want to get to a couple of kind of data-driven follow-up stories where we yeah, had a chance. Let's get away from the depressing dollar stories <laughs> here for a bit. Yeah. So let, let's talk a couple about um, some data-driven follow-up stories that we did. I guess the first one I want to talk about is the legislature has passed some transparency laws, some basic expectations of what school districts are supposed to publish on their website for the benefit of taxpayers, the public, parents, whoever. And so last year, uh, this was kind of cool, our data analyst, public records specialist, Randy Schrader, a former Idaho superintendent, and our editor, Jennifer Swindell, took a look at every school district's website in the state uh, to try and find out who all was in compliance with these transparency uh, requirements. What they found last year, very surprising to me, only 8% of school districts and charter schools were in full compliance compared to Idaho Education News' analysis. 
that was a tough one for me to get out <laughs> last year. Uh, but this year, Kevin, we've got some good news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did a follow up, and, and I want to give folks credit. Um, this year, uh, 31% of districts or charters uh, are in full compliance, and another 52 districts are just missing one data element. So there's been a big turnaround in terms of the transparency, in terms of the information uh, that is available uh, on, on school district websites. It, it's a good news data story in the sense that, you know, you know, credit where credit is due. I mean, yeah. districts really responded to uh, the story from last year, really kind of reached out to, uh, to ISBA, uh, even reached out to us and asked, well, what do we need to do to get ourselves into compliance? So, uh, you know, districts and district officials took the matter seriously in a lot of cases and made some real changes. And why is that good news? Well, it's not just good news for us. I mean, I use these websites frequently for my reporting, but those are there for you. They're there for patrons, for parents, for taxpayers to get a little bit better pulse of what's going on in your school district. I mean... In this day and age, it goes without saying, people use uh, the internet a lot more for just basically following what's going on in, in their government. So this compliance improvement is uh, is a big deal. It's a good story. Yeah, and the fact that most Idaho school districts and charter schools are in compliance or very close to being in compliance, maybe missing one element, uh, is good news, especially because it was an improvement over last year. And so what are we talking about with this transparency law, what needs to be on district websites. Mm -hmm. It's all expenditures, including the names and addresses uh, of, of vendors and entities receiving money, a description of the expenditure, contracts, annual budgets, master labor agreements, and strategic plans. Those are the kind of things uh, that are required to be on websites, and more and more districts are embracing that and, and coming into compliance. Yeah, it's nuts and bolts accountability stuff that should be in the public view. If you want a full list of the districts in compliance and what has to be on there, check it out. We published it earlier this week. The headline is, Most Districts Charters Make School Practice More Transparent. I also wanted to ask you, Kevin, we've heard some back and forth about dual yeah. credit classes and, and how effective they are and where they're being applied once students leave high school and, and go on to higher ed a little bit of a dust-up, but what's the latest and what did you find? Well, there was a little bit of back and forth between uh, the State Board of Education and the State Department of Education over the dual credit program. And basically, how are kids applying these dual credits that they're receiving while in high school? What happens to them in, when, when they get to college? How are these credits applied? Well, the fact is nobody can know for sure how they're used because these kids are going to college now. They may or may not switch majors. Uh, their credits may or may not uh, apply to what they ultimately wind up majoring in. So there's a lot of discussion about how are these credits used? Are they used towards a degree? Are they used as electives? Uh, State Board, as they looked at the stool credit program last week, uh, a staffer said that uh, the majority of these credits uh, seem to be uh, used for electives. State Department of Education came back and said, well, that doesn't sound right from what our research shows. Uh, they, they cited numbers that suggested that a lot more of these credits might wind up being used for degree programs, but again, we don't know for sure. So you had data from the State Department of Education. You had maybe more anecdotal evidence that the State Board used, uh, input that they got from parents. The, the bottom line here is, and, and why you should care about it at this point, the dual credit program is growing. We know that. There's going to be more state dollars applied to, to dual credit, to encouraging and 
and financing high school students taking college credits because you now it's seen as one of the ways to encourage kids to go to college and get their degree uh, by making it a lot more affordable on the front end. So this whole debate about how these dual credits are applied, how valuable are they, it's not just an academic debate because it's really going to affect how we fund this program and how we view these dual credits. I mean, you know, I, I know it from my experience, you know it from yours, you know, going to college. I mean, you got to take electives anyway. Right. And that's kind of the, the State Department of Education's argument in this is, well, we don't know how many of these are going to be used as electives. We don't know how many of them are going to be used towards degree programs. But you know what? You know, if a kid comes out of high school with a few credits, whether they wind up being electives or not, it could be a big, a big factor in their decision to uh, to pursue a college education. So it's, anyway, we it, break it down. Yeah, it's a big issue for the legislature. It has been for several years. I mean, to be fair, most high school kids would not have declared uh, a major at that point to even know whether these credits would count towards their major. But I think the, the point is for lawmakers, uh, when they started this program, they wanted kids to get a jump start on their college education and, and to get credits out of the way uh, for cheap or greatly re reduced cost. Um, and, and so I, I think that's the reality of, of what's going on. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting story. If you want to get caught up, uh, look for Kevin's story at Idaho Ed News. Real quick, Kevin, um, just give me a, a sneak peek at next week. Maybe what's the top story you're going to be looking at next week? Well, one of the things I'm going to be looking at next week, and I'm starting to you know, compile it right now, We've been talking a lot about the literacy initiative and how that's going to be rolled out in the schools. So um, this is kind of a milestone stage in the process because uh, at this point, districts have to submit their plans. What are they going to do with their share of this $9.1 million in literacy money? How are they going to try to help kids who are not reading at grade level uh, from from kindergarten through third grade. So I'm starting to compile some of those uh, plans, look them over, and talk to some local officials about uh, sort of the implementation, sort of maybe get sort of a cross-section uh, of what's, uh, what's in the works in schools. And, it, and it's kind of a, a story that's going to help maybe set the stage for some bigger coverage on literacy that uh, we're working on in the weeks and months ahead, working with Idaho Public Television on, on some... Uh, joint reporting on this. So it's a, a step in the process. But what are these districts talking about doing? How does it vary? Because uh, they have a lot of latitude here for how they spend their share of this money. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing those plans and seeing your reporting. I think that gets us caught up with all the headlines from this week. I want to remind everybody that they can connect with at Idaho Ed News on Twitter and um, Idaho Education News on Facebook to follow us throughout the week and get join more than 5,000 Facebook followers. Yeah, and we hit a milestone uh, last week, and so we're excited about that. Also, if you like us on Facebook, uh, you'll get information about our next live podcast recording. We're going to try and shoot for next week if it works out, but follow our Facebook page for all the latest and greatest. Uh, but meanwhile, as always, I want to thank everybody for listening to Extra Credit this week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.